Rare Book School 2002, March session, Party That Never Ends. And indeed, our speaker this evening is Book Arts Press Lecturer number 450-something. So, how much I must know, <laughs> since I've heard all but two of them. I had a tooth out during one of them, and I double-scheduled myself in another, but I am 99 and just about 99 and 44 one-hundredths uh, learned because of this. Our speaker this evening, Barbara Shaler, uh, has been connected with Rare Book School in one way or another since the mid-1980s when she took Albinia de la Mer's celebrated course in humanist manuscripts on a week when outside the classroom the city of New York was paving West 114th Street. It's much easier to do business here. Uh, Barbara Shaler will be teaching the manuscript book course starting in Rare Books School this summer. So this is a preliminary foray on her part, not only to give the lecture tonight, but also to look at some of the University of Virginia's resources. One of which, by good luck, is part of the subject of her talk this evening. Uh, Otto Eggy, who has been mentioned from this podium before because Christopher de Hamel's Malkin lecture of some years ago, this podium metaphorically, spoke with odd horror of the activities of Otto Eggy, and it's glad to know what his uh, doings are in greater detail. And I'm glad that it's possible. De Hamel said at the time that he was so fascinated by Eggy that he almost devoted his entire lecture to the subject. It's a great pleasure to welcome the director of the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Yale University, Barbara Shaler, speaking on Otto Eggy. I'd like to thank Terry very much for that uh, lovely introduction and to say that I had a wonderful experience when I was taking the course with Albinia Delamere in the 1980s. I had just started to work on the Yale collection called the Marston Manuscripts, and Tom Marston uh, collected this amazing number of medieval and Renaissance manuscripts, and his goal was to try to recreate the library of a 15th century Italian humanist. And so to study with Albinia della Mare was really exactly what I needed to do at the time before I did the catalog. And I would like this evening to actually dedicate my remarks to Tilly as we knew her, because indeed she was the authority on Italian humanist hands. And uh, she shared, as you will discover during the course of my remarks, uh, my fascination with Otto Eggy, along with a lot of others. And it will become apparent why I want to dedicate this lecture to her memory. So thank you very much for inviting me. And, uh, and I hope that you will understand a little bit more about both the pleasures and the horror that people have about Otto Eggy. What do the following institutions with special collections of rare books and manuscripts have in common? The Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library of Yale University, 
Rutgers University, the University of Virginia, the Boston University School of Theology Library, Columbia University, the Houghton Library of Harvard University. They all have individual leaves of manuscripts formerly in the proud possession of one man named Otto Eggie. And indeed, it is possible to expand upon this list of institutions by adding the names of at least 50 other museums, college and university libraries, and private collections ranging from the Beverly Hills Public Library in California to the Library of Congress. Otto Eggie lived from 1888 to 1951, and both served professionally as the dean of the Cleveland Institute of Art, and personally collected manuscripts and printed texts from the Middle Ages and Renaissance. No one knows precisely how many complete volumes or fragmentary leaves Eggie owned in his lifetime, but we can determine from Seymour de Ricci's Census of Medieval and Renaissance Manuscripts that was published in 1937, and from some of Otto's reflections himself, the following useful bits of information. First, Eggie began acquiring manuscripts as a young man in 1911, primarily in various parts of Europe and in the United States. He vividly recounts his first auction in Philadelphia, at which he competed successfully against the well-known bibliophile Dr. Rosenbach, and this is what Otto Eggie said. As soon as I saw the book, which in this case was a book of ours, I knew that I must have it at all costs. Timidly, I bid $25. My distinguished neighbor raised my bid to $50. I boldly said $100. He followed with $125. And then I excitedly said $175 and obtained the treasure. This venture was made when my salary was $125 a month. Oh. Many other items he acquired were from book dealers active in the early part of the 20th century, namely Quaritch or Davis and Orioli of London and Rosenthal or Adler of Munich. The provenance of other items in his collection is, however, more problematic, with only a vague reference such as, and I'll use this a lot because I quote from him, obtained in Egypt, or obtained from Rome, or obtained 1922 in Granada. Secondly, although the de Ricci census has 71 individual entries for Eggie's collection in 1937, the list is not complete. Eggie possessed at least 400 single leaves of Latin manuscripts, mainly from Italian and Spanish choir books of the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries, none of which were included in the census. Additionally, the entry in the census description concludes with a tantalizing statement. There are also in the collection 30 vellum deeds and charters in Latin, Spanish, and English, 14th through 16th centuries. <clears throat> a third piece of information requires some interpretation of the list of his holdings, namely that Otto Eggie's collection was fairly representative of the types of manuscripts that were produced and read in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. He acquired Bibles, 
both the large format Bibles and the small portable pocket Bibles. He had many liturgical manuscripts, such as missals and breviaries, as well as psalters. And he had quite a few books of hours, the best-selling prayer books of the later Middle Ages and early Renaissance. Small, lovely volumes that were brilliantly illuminated with golden colors and often produced for patrons who could special order personalized copies. He collected everything. Hence, the 1937 census description of his manuscripts provides a fascinating but cursory and incomplete description of his medieval and Renaissance holdings. And indeed, there is also no mention in the census of Eggie's other career. He was a book dealer who sold as well as collected items. For the moment, I'd like to put aside Otto Eggie, his life, career, and collection, and turn our attention to the spring of 1997 as I was preparing to teach an upper-level classics course on Latin paleography and medieval manuscripts when I was at Rutgers. I made an appointment in the university's special collections department to look at anything that would be suitable for teaching. That's exactly what I'm doing now. I'm looking for the kinds of things that students would be interested in. I was thoroughly surprised and delighted at what was there, especially there were a few uncatalogued items that caught my attention. There were three exceptional leaves from 15th century Italy, each from a different manuscript and each copied in different styles of writing called humanistic by Latin paleographers. And this is where Tilly comes into the picture. These were exactly the kinds of leaves that beginning paleography students like. The fragments are relatively legible for those who are just beginning to learn how to decipher medieval and Renaissance hands. And they were leaves of famous classical authors. And here I'd like to put on the slides, if I may. Now, it's not important that you be able to read this. So please do not be disturbed if you cannot transcribe it from beginning to end. This is actually a leaf from Cicero's De Finibus, and it's in the Rutgers collection. Also turns out that there is a leaf in the Yale collection with a modern annotation in pencil dating it precisely to 1456 AD. The attribution of a specific date was puzzling because there's no evidence from the leaf itself or in library files as to how this date was determined. This slide reproduces the recto of the leaf, and it's written in a competent but not terribly attractive humanistic bookhand. The second leaf is from Terence's comedy, The Mother-in-Law, and it is copied in a most elegant humanistic bookhand. One can readily see the origin of modern type fonts in this script, and as the paleographical investigations of Albinia della Mare have revealed, the script is attributable to the accomplished scribe, Giuliano D'Antonio of Prato, Florence, and therefore can be dated to about 1450 to 60. This third leaf comes from a copy of Livy's History of Rome. It actually is the end of book four, the beginning of five, and it is written in a somewhat less careful script with many cursive elements 
but with a lovely gold initial with white vine stem ornament on a multicolored ground. And the color here is fairly accurate. It's very deep in terms of the hues. The style of the script and the design of the initial would suggest an origin in northeastern Italy, perhaps Padova, in the third quarter of the 15th century. Once again, a modern annotation in pencil dates the leaf precisely to 1456 AD. What we see here is the verso where the large letter P introduces the beginning of book five. And once again, as a paleographer, I said to myself, how in the world do we know that this is dated to 1456 AD? It was when I looked at the next item, a brilliant leaf of the finest parchment from a 13th century illuminated missal, that I realized it was most probable that all of these four leaves were formerly in the collection of Otto Eggy. The various pieces of the puzzle began to fit into place in my mind, and this leaf was perhaps the most significant clue. And I'm going to show you the other side of this because I think that it's such a spectacular leaf. I had seen two other sister leaves in the Beinecke, where a book and manuscript library at Yale, and was aware of the infamous history of the manuscript from which it came. And one of the things I want to comment upon was that one of the leaves in the Beinecke um, we obtained at one point, not in the too distant future. It's in such great condition that it was said to be by the book dealer who sold it to us a facsimile of a 13th century manuscript. This manuscript has been worked on by art historians for several decades, who have been trying to locate the scattered fragments of the dismembered volume so as to reassemble and to study the codex as it was originally configured. The most recent one who's been working on this is Allison Stones. The Yale leaves of this missile, as others owned by the Lilly Library, the Boston Public Library, Hollins College, Case Western Reserve, the Pierpont Morgan, and several additional institutions and private individuals, all come from an exquisite and apparently complete manuscript sold by auction at Sotheby's in 1926. At that sale, it was noted that on the blank recto of the beginning of the liturgical calendar, there was a bequest inscription in Latin that was contemporary with the manuscript. The inscription stated that one Robertus de Hongus, canon of Beauvais Cathedral, whose anniversary was to be commemorated on the 3rd of November, gave the manuscript as a bequest to Beauvais Cathedral. Because of this inscription now lost, the manuscript was and is still referred to today as the Beauvais Missal. Regrettably, at some point after the Sotheby's sale in 1926, the manuscript was broken up into pieces, and this is where Otto Eggy resurfaces in our story. And I'd like to have the lights back on, please. For those of you who do not know about Otto Eggy, I think I should give you a bit of some background information. He was a manuscript evangelist and a self-proclaimed biblioclast. Indeed, he wrote an article in 1938 entitled, I am a biblioclast. He admitted, and I'm going to quote from him here, 
For more than 25 years, I have been one of those strange, eccentric book terrors. Abuse has often been heaped upon our ilk. William Blades in his Enemies of Books and Holbrook Jackson in his Anatomy of Bibliomania each devote a chapter decrying the eccentricities and deeds of mutilators of books. Andrew Lang has divided us into classes and types, and he puts in parentheses, I find that I am the aesthetic ghoul of the book world. Eggie's objective was to share the glory of medieval and Renaissance manuscripts with others. The less fortunate students and scholars who did not have access to the extraordinary primary source materials of the past. To quote once more from his passionate words, surely to allow a thousand people to have and to hold an original manuscript leaf and to get the thrill and understanding that comes only from actual and frequent contact with these art heritages is justification enough for the scattering of fragments. Few indeed can hope to own a complete manuscript book. Hundreds, however, may own a leaf. Otto Egge's evangelism was so successful over the years that in the 1950s, after his death, his philosophy inspired an unusual tour of parts of the Midwest in the United States. An aluminum trailer filled with a display of fragments of early manuscripts and books including those of Otto Eggie, was sponsored by the Grolier Society, not to be confused with the Grolier Club, and went from town to town to display its treasures. This great history of the book bus tour was called the Magic Carpet on Wheels. In the manner of a traveling library, at each stop, the public was invited to view the items and to hear a brief lecture on the history of the book. And this made sensational press in the Midwest, and I have many um, clippings of the newspaper accounts showing this aluminum trailer and people lined up for miles, practically, to have a glance at these treasures and to hear about the history of the book. Not only did Otto Eggie sell individual fragments as a book dealer, and I think that this is important, he sold pieces and he also created portfolios or sets of leaves. He was, however, different from earlier connoisseurs of the 18th and early 19th centuries, who often cut out the painted miniatures or gold initials so that they could be mounted and appreciated outside the context of the text page. And I think we're all aware of these kinds of albums that were created where you would see, with horror once again, the gold initial or a decorated, historiated initial put in the album. Otto Eggy was different because he specialized in the complete single leaf that would serve as an example of script, text, and sometimes decoration all together. In this sense, we can see that Otto Eggy was responding, perhaps without total awareness, to the growing appreciation for the artisan as opposed to the artist that was typical of the arts and crafts movement of the turn of the century into the 1920s. And certainly John Ruskin in England is probably the most notable example of those individuals who extended their appreciation from the single miniature or single initial to the page on which it resided. As we now see so clearly, Ruskin and Eggie with him did not take the next logical step 
to go from the page to the book itself. And I'd now like to go back, if I may, to the slides. And if I could have the lights, thank you. This is how Otto Eggie fulfilled his biblioclastic mission. By dismembering partially or completely bound manuscripts into individual leaves. By mounting the fragments onto what we can now say are distinctive Otto Eggie mats, cream-colored and sometimes with fine lines framing the leaf. Now, I was proud to find out today when I went to Special Collections that your Otto Eggie portfolio has gone off for conservation so that, in fact, these acidic boards can be removed. On the one hand, I was dying to see your eggy fragments. On the other, I was delighted to hear that they were going to be conserved. He arranged the fragments chronologically and or thematically into box sets. Each item and set was numbered. He provided a brief printed description of the fragment that frequently includes a very precise dating to a single stated year. And then lastly, he sold them to museums, libraries, and interested book collectors around the United States and abroad. When I say that he arranged the, the, the leaves thematically, I mean that each set of box fragments presented a particular perspective on the development of scripts and sometimes type fonts. For example, some of the fragment collections he sold had the following titles. Original leaves from, from famous Bibles, nine centuries, 1121 to 1935. And this was actually two distinct series. Another set was called 50 Original Leaves for Medieval Manuscripts. And still a third was described as Original Leaves Illustrating the Evolution of Black Letter Types. It is not yet clear how many portfolio sets or individual leaves Eggie actually sold before he died in 1951. But what is apparent is the essential nature of Eggie's evangelism that resulted in the massive dismemberment and distant scattering of thousands, and I'm convinced that it is indeed not hundreds, but thousands of manuscript leaves, first across the United States and eventually internationally. For the researcher committed to understanding the transmission of classical and medieval texts and how books were produced, read, and used by students and scholars of the past, the biblioclastic passion of Otto has had profound consequences. Perhaps the greatest issue is dispersion. I sincerely doubt that it will ever be possible to locate all the leaves that have been scattered. In 1934, there were 103 leaves of this Terence manuscript. It was then a complete codex, and the book dealer's descriptions say that it was still in its original 15th century wooden boards and brown leather binding. Now, of those 103 leaves, approximately 20 have been recently traced, though not all located. And uh, Albinia de la Mer and another gentleman who's actually a student of Albert Derolet, who works on Terence, have been trying to track down this particular manuscript. So this means that more than 80 leaves of text are still missing, to say nothing of that original binding. 
A second serious issue confronts those scholars interested in the archaeology of the book, the field of codicology. For we study medieval and Renaissance manuscripts as material artifacts of the culture that produced them. Yet the zeal of Eggy meant that the book as artifact no longer exists, and bindings are critical factors for historians of the book. They can help answer the question, which individuals or monastic institutions owned a volume? Bindings, together with their paste downs and fly leaves, frequently provide crucial evidence such as shelf marks, not just contemporary but later shelf marks, inscriptions, structural clues like chains that tell us who bound the volume, who commissioned it, or where it may have wandered across the centuries. For medieval and Renaissance manuscripts were frequently loaned, borrowed, presented as gifts by one scholar or institution to another. And I have one example that can perhaps illustrate the magnitude of the loss when the binding is removed. This slide reproduces a lovely bifolium presented to me by a generous friend and private book collector. It is from a Cistercian missal, perhaps copied in 12th century Spain. Now the key here is to know that I work on Spain as well as on the materials at the Beinecke Library. So my friend thought that it would be nice for me to actually have something that he thought was from Spain. This is fairly large in size. It's in a format easy to read aloud for the celebration of the Mass. It's actually a bifolium, and what you're looking at here is the beginning of the bifolium. And here we see the verso. And in particular, what I'd like you to look at is um, the D at the top, and then the D that comes down a little bit further, and rather the, the innovative design of the initials. And it is really quite a spectacular volume. I have no doubts that this is 12th century. Um, I am not convinced necessarily that it is Spain, even though this is my area. So I was astounded when I discovered something rather by accident. Here is my bifolium. It's the same exact fragment in its former location within the manuscript book's binding, which is now lost, when the manuscript was once photographed for an exhibition catalog. The residue marks of the early hardware, five bosses on the exterior of the lower wooden board, are discernible in the photograph, but the other physical evidence is missing. With respect to the former binding, the catalog entry for this exhibition read, and this is a quote, original sewing on split leather bands with manuscript spine linings. What I would not give to know what those manuscript spine linings were. Laced-in end bands appear to be continuous with sewing structure. Binding of blind-stamped alum pigskin over wooden boards fastened with small wooden pegs. All hardware missing except one brass 
boss. Now, I should say that Christopher de Hamel, who has looked at this fragment um, or other fragments from this missile, has speculated that this is not indeed Spain, but perhaps Austria. Um, he's not seen this photograph, and I've not really shared it with anyone who is a binder, especially of the 12th through 15th centuries, because one of the questions that is raised, is this in fact the original binding, or is this a later edition? It still would clarify something about both the origin and the provenance of the manuscript. The existence of this photographic reproduction and description raises a most significant issue. How much information was lost when the various manuscript books were disassembled? And to what extent were Otto Egge's precise attributions of place and date derived from this missing evidence? As mentioned above, the Egge leaves almost always carry very specific attributions of date. This happens with such frequency that a precise date attributed to a single leaf is certainly sufficient to arouse the scholar's suspicion that he or she is looking at an eggy leaf. But is it possible that all the manuscripts disassembled by eggy were in fact dated so precisely by their scribes? Statistically, this is hardly likely. One begins to conjecture that eggy or others associated with him assign these dates. Eggy, as we know, as well as serving as dean of the Cleveland Institute of Art, was also the lecturer on history of the book at the Library School of Case Western Reserve University. I wonder, and this is pure speculation, if the precise dates of the Eggy leaves reflect Eggy's own training as a librarian of printed books more than his study of the world of hand-produced manuscripts in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. Although it may be forever impossible to recreate physically this volume in its entirety. And this volume, or any of the volumes, complete with the heft of a volume such as a large choir book, the velvety feel of a well-prepared piece of parchment, or the impressions on a stamp binding. The advent of electronic technology holds remarkable promise for reassembling the fragments and it is this possibility that I should now like to consider. For the complete title of my lecture is A Biblioclass Meets Modern Technology. So I'd like you to, if you would, imagine with me the following scenario. Let us create an Otto Eggy database to which every institution or private collector would contribute digitized images of the recto and verso of each fragment, where entire sets or portfolios of images could also be viewed. And indeed, this has recently been done by a couple of libraries, most notably by the Rochester Institute of Technology for its entire Eggy collection. Therefore, the random or rogue leaves, not informal sets, as well as the portfolios, and I have to say there are many stray leaves floating around in public and private collections, could be identified through comparison as genuine Eggy leaves that have gone astray. And these random leaves could be added to the overall corpus of eggy material. For example, we might then discover those 80 leaves of the Terence manuscript that remain missing. And I want to add something that recently happened to me in Connecticut. Um, a friend of mine moved to um, another town nearby. She, she just retired as professor of history at Oberlin. 
And I walked into her study, and hanging on her wall were two leaves. And I said to her, Marcia, do you know what you have on your wall? And she said, no, they were gifts to me by my mentor, who was also a professor at Oberlin. And one, indeed, was a fragment by the well-known humanistic scribe Bartolomeo San Vito, whom Tilly was working on, and the other was a leaf from Livy, the same Livy. Now, I want to um, suggest a methodology that might work for reconstructing Otto Eggie's collection. There's a monumental project called Digital Scriptorium that was begun jointly by Columbia University and the University of California at Berkeley. And I think it provides a conceptual starting point for the Otto Eggie database. Digital Scriptorium's long-term goal is to offer electronically at least one image from every medieval and Renaissance manuscript in participating institutions. There are now 12 American institutions involved in this initiative, and I'm convinced that eggy fragments will crop up as more reproductions of items are added to the digital scriptorium database. And what I want to do here, indeed, is to compare this fragment, which you saw earlier, and if we may, I want to take this down first. So I want to turn it off. Okay, so that's the leave that's at Columbia. This is the Digital Scriptorium website. And now do you want me to put the other one back up? Okay. That's that's fine. Okay, so if you can keep the visual image of the first Terence in mind, okay, and then go to the medium. And one of the things that I think I, I, I want to say here quite clearly is that the quality of image here is so extraordinary that there is no doubt, as a paleographer, that we're dealing with leaves from the same manuscript. We're dealing with the same color range in terms of the rubrics, in terms of the decorative initials. One could do a letter-by-letter -letter analysis. And what is even better is that once we finished with the recto, we can move on to the verso and do exactly the same thing. Okay, now, in the same way that it's possible with this Terence manuscript to determine that the Columbia leaf and the Rutgers leaf are indeed the same, it is possible determine, to determine that the Rutgers Livy leaf is not the same as the one at the Rochester Institute of Technology. And so, what we're doing here, this is the Livy leaf, 15th century Italian humanistic script, and 
if you will also now go to the next one where it is also a good quality image. And you can see very clearly the scribe was excellent. This is, this is extraordinary in terms of quality. Okay, now, you want me to put back on the... Yes. Okay, now, even those of you who are not Latin paleographers will be able to determine that we are actually dealing here with two different Livy manuscripts that Otto Eggy took apart. And this is the piece that so excited Tilly when she discovered that she was dealing not with one dismembered volume, but that there were actually two from the period. And if you look at them, I think there's absolutely no comparison between the quality of the scribal work. For me, the image is worth a thousand words, and many other libraries will only recognize that they hold Otto Eggy leaves when they see a matching leaf or don't see a matching leaf in a good color digitized image, when they can count the number of lines of text, identify pertinent features of script, punctuation, and everything that we look for as both paleographers and codicologists. My next step would be that after we establish the Otto Eggy database, we would consider using software such as Luna Imaging's latest version of its Insight program to organize all the leaves according to the original manuscript from which they came. So think of this now as using um, essentially a slide-like table, but it's from the websites. All the fragments from any given Eggy manuscript, for example, the large leaves from the 12th century missal, from the Terence or from the two Livies, could be pulled together and arranged in the proper order, annotated as to the precise text identification, and noted where leaves are missing from the sequence, so that as new leaves come on board, one could put them in the sequence. And in the case of reconstructing the amazing manuscript vol volumes that Eggy took apart. One could conclude, for example, the 12th century volume with a computerized reconstruction of the now lost binding. And the image of the binding could be linked to images of surviving bindings on comparable manuscripts. As the final step in reconstruction, let us envision an active site such as that recently created at the British Library for the Lindisfarne Gospels and several other rare books and manuscripts. Visitors to the British Library can now leaf through an electronic version of the volume through touchscreen technology. Using Adobe Photoshop and Director 4, the touchscreen technology allows the reader to move back and forth in the volume. Tap the screen and the leaves turn. The reader can also zoom in on particular illuminations or features of page layout or hear an audio clip that provides information about the text. And I'd like the lights back on, please. The British Library innovation cannot physically reassemble a scattered and broken book, but its principal purpose and technology are surely appropriate to the codices dismembered by Eggy and his fellow book terrors. 
The British Library's goal, in its very, very deepest sense, is much the same as Eggie's, to bring knowledge of this evidence of our past to everyone, not just to the scholar and the highly specialized research library, but to a broad and ever more interested public. Eggie made medieval manuscripts public by scattering their leaves to many institutions and individuals. Modern digitization of computers can perform the same task by putting the images of the leaves on the web. Anyone who cares to tap on a computer screen, as in the British Library's Lindisfarne Gospels project, could bring reconstructed medieval manuscripts into full-color view. For Otto Eggie manuscripts now dispersed around the world, the possibilities presented by modern technology are fascinating and, I believe, compelling. It is only a matter of time, financial resources, scholarly communication and perseverance before significant portions of his collection will be reassembled and made available electronically. And to paraphrase Eggie's concluding remarks at the end of his article, I Am a Biblioclass, he states, it will be possible to gather together three score manuscripts as well as hundreds of leaves, several dozen incunabula, and approximately a hundred example and hundreds of examples of the great presses, and to share these with others, young and old, near and far. Okay, now I'm going to end with a slight twist, because in fact, I am a historian of the book, and this is really where my interest has been. I cannot say that having worked on the real thing now for 30 years, that I can say that technology is going to um, enhance my passion. My passion is there because of the hand-produced manuscript itself. From the imperfections in the parchment to the utilitarian leather book tabs attached to the edge of leaves, to the interlinear scribbles of generations of students and scholars, to the glitter of real gold leaf, to the way a manuscript book feels as you open its cover. These intimate qualities of medieval and Renaissance manuscripts are my touch with the past. Libraries, I believe, will continue to have and to cherish their special collections, where the medium of transmission can carry as much weight as the message, or as at times, or at times even more. For special collections preserve these unique materials and treasures that tangibly help us, and me in particular, to comprehend our human history. Thank you.